0: All right, how's everyone doing this morning? Uh, today we continue in our journey through the Gospel of Matthew. And I think that this is a significant section in our journey through the, through the Gospel because today we get to preach the first sermon of the last 28 sermons that we will be preaching in the Gospel of Matthew. Now, let me tell you what's special. I know that's not special to you, but it's special to me because, you know, I get to preach. Uh, but it's special because today we are studying the first day of the last week of Jesus. The first day of the last week of Jesus. So in Jesus' time, today will be Sunday, March 29, 29 year 33, Palm Sunday. In Jesus' time, today it will be March 29, Sunday, uh, Sunday, March 29, year 33. And someone may ask the question, if this is the last week of Jesus, and there's only seven days in it, how come you're preaching 27 sermons? That's a valid question, right? And I'm going to give you two very thoughtful answers. Number one, we are cool like that. And number two is because if you read the Gospels, you would see that in all four Gospels, there are more time dedicated to the last week of Jesus than anything else. So one-third of the Gospel of Matthew is dedicated to the last week of Jesus. One-third of the Gospel of Mark is dedicated to the last week of Jesus. One-fourth of the Gospel of Luke is dedicated to the last week of Jesus. And half of the Gospel of John is dedicated to the, to the last week of Jesus. This is part of the reason why we're going to spend all this time going through the last week of Jesus. And what I want, I want to invite you to do, though, is to look at this section, this last week, these 27 sermons, the same way you would approach a beautiful piece of art. See, when, when, you, when you have in front of you a beautiful piece of art, you got to admire two things. Not only the finished product how everything came to be, but you also got to admire the little details that added to the finished product. So how many of you guys are like big picture guys? Raise your hand real quick. How many of you guys tend to focus on the details more than the big picture? You guys going to love this. <laughs> so for the next 27 weeks, I'm going to lose the big picture, guys, and it's okay. Just keep coming. Today then, in the section we're looking at today, you will get a taste of what that looks like. Because in the section today, every little detail matters in order for us to understand what's happening. And today then, as we look into this Jesus triumphal entrance into Jerusalem, we will talk about three things. The king's disclosure... The crowd's response and the beginning of something new. The king's disclosure, the crowd's response and the beginning of something new. So I need you to do me a favor. Look at the person next to you and say, you got to pay attention to the details. Go ahead. Go ahead. Let's go with point number one. The king's disclosure. Now, if you have been walking with us through the journey of Gospel of Matthew, you probably already noticed and recognized that many times, time and time again, every time Jesus would perform something powerful or do something powerful or say something powerful about himself, he would immediately tell the people that was with him, don't say anything. Did you guys notice that? Time and time again. He would say, do something, or he would do something, and he would go to the disciples and whoever was there and say, do not say anything to anybody just yet. But when we get to Matthew chapter 21, the story is completely different. When we get to Matthew 21, we see Jesus having no issues, people recognizing who he is and why he came. He had no issues allowing people to see that he was the Messiah and that he had a mission. Actually, what we're going to see right now is that God is so intentional. That Jesus is so intentional and people seeing who he is, that he's orchestrating everything to make sure that people understand that he was the Messiah. So, for example, in verse 1. We see Jesus coming into Jerusalem, and he sends two of his disciples, and this is what he says to them in verse 2. Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there and her colt by her, and tie them and bring them to me. And look what it says in verse 3. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. Notice that he doesn't say, he says to the disciples and says, listen, I'm going to give you some money. Try to buy an animal because I'm going to need an animal. He doesn't say to the disciples and says, listen, go over there and try to negotiate. Let's see if you find something. Actually, the text assumes that Jesus had already made an arrangement with somebody That he will go send the disciples to get the call, to get the the baby donkey, and that they will have no issues releasing this donkey. How do I know that? Because he says, if somebody is going to ask a question, just tell them the Lord needs them, the mom and the baby, and they will bring it right away. Right from the beginning, you could see that Jesus was arranging everything for a purpose. He is intentional about everything that he's going to do here. And from verses 4 to 9, we're going to see all the details that prove why is it that Jesus did that. And why is it that Jesus did that? So in the context here, this is the gist of it. Jesus wants everyone to know that he is the Messiah promised in the Old Testament. So let's just start in verse 4. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. It is from here on that you really have to stay with me for a while. Because every single major expression in those verses is going to say something about how Jesus was orchestrating everything and why that was so significant, starting with verse 4. He says, this says, that the text, That Jesus was being intentional about people making a connection between the Old Testament prophecy and himself. See, Jesus knows that his crowd, the crowd in front of him, they know so much about the Old Testament. He knows that they know what is it that's supposed to expect that would confirm that the Messiah had arrived. And from this point on, he's going to make point after point after point to prove that up. In verse 5, look at what it says. Say to daughter of Zion, see your kingdom comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey and a colt, the foe of a donkey. Every single phrase there matters. So for example, the name daughter Zion is an expression found in Isaiah chapter 62, the prophet Isaiah. In which the prophet says, That a Savior will come. And Jesus here is publicly declaring that he is the Savior of Isaiah chapter 62. Pay attention to the phrase, your king comes riding on a cold. That phrase is coming from Zechariah chapter 9. In which the prophet had said that the Messiah will be righteous and a defender and will be gentle and riding and a donkey. And Jesus here is publicly saying, I am the righteous defender that comes to bring salvation. That's what I'm, I'm riding on a baby donkey. The word gentle is the same word that we find in Isaiah chapter 53. In which the prophet is saying that the, that the Messiah would come as a suffering servant. And Jesus now is publicly declaring that he is that suffering servant. What about the colt? What about the baby donkey? I'm going to borrow something from the scholar D.A. Carson. In which he notices that a donkey, a baby donkey, is an unbroken animal. Meaning that an unbroken animal would never submit to any human will. But here you have a baby donkey in which Jesus is riding, and nothing and the donkey is doing not anything at all. Why does that matter? Because Jesus is publicly declaring something that he has already shown time and time again throughout the gospel, is that he is the king, not only king over people, but king over nature that even an unbroken animal submits to him. Church, if you are bored, that was only one verse. <laughs> Look at verse 8. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches and put them on the road as well. You know that image of grabbing the branches and putting it on the floor, it's an image that is borrowed from the Old Testament, in which when a king would come into the city, All the people that understood that he was a king would grab the branches, put it on the floor as a symbolism of saying, you are our king and we submit to you. It's not just, "Ah!" no, 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 no. You are a king and we submit to you. And Jesus says, I am the king. I am the king that everyone's supposed to submit to. If you're bored by now, that's only two verses. <laughs> Look at verse 9. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The word Hosanna, as many of you guys know, is the word to save. It is a cry of deliverance, and Jesus is publicly declaring here that he is the only one, the ultimate king that not only can deliver people, but want to deliver people. What about the phrase, the son of David? See, the Old Testament has said that the true Messiah will come from the kingship of David. And people are recognizing that Jesus comes from there. Therefore, Jesus is publicly declaring that he is the true David, the ultimate David. Now, you got to ask the question, why is it that for 33 years, Jesus kept all of this a secret? Actually, you got to ask the question, why is it that for the last three years of ministry, he did not want anybody to know all of this. And then you got this image of Jesus coming and, uh, riding a donkey, coming into the city, allowing and welcoming people to worship him like he never did before. Actually, in that context and in that time, people already knew that if you were a king and you came uh, in a victory parade, if you will, people would actually see the king riding a war horse with people in the front and people in the back, everyone saying, praise the king. It's not like if a Jesus comes in riding a donkey and then people start worshiping and he's like, what just happened? No, 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 no. He's orchestrating everything so, it, so what he wants to take place takes place, Jesus wants people to recognize that he's the Messiah that we're waiting for. He wants people to recognize that he's the great king, the great savior, the suffering servant that comes to deliver his people. He wants people to know and acknowledge that he is the son of David, the one that even nature submits to him. Man, that's a crazy celebration. Exuberant celebration. The whole city is part of that. Everyone is worship him. Listen. That party was so crazy exuberant that the the religious leader says in Luke chapter 19 that the religious leaders got uncomfortable. So and so much that they go to the disciples and say to the disciples, hey, please tell them to stop worshiping you. And these are the famous words that Jesus says even if these people stop worshiping me, the stones will. That's a crazy statement. You know who says that? Crazy people. So I want to make a a parenthesis here. Just in case there's someone that is questioning the Christianity or is a seeker or is not clear about what the Bible says about Jesus. See, that kind of statement... If you don't worship me, the stones will. Jesus says that kind of stuff all the time. Really, he says stuff like that all the time. He says, for example, I existed before I was born. Who says that? Right, he says, Moses wrote about me. I knew Abraham even before I was born. What? He says, I saw Satan fall. This is the reason why I say that. John Stott would say that when you hear stuff like that from Jesus, you got two options. Either you you think of him as a lunatic, psychotic, or you believe that he is who he says he is. You only get two options. Either Jesus is the ultimate expression of an egocentric, narcissistic, selfish, full of himself fanatic, or he is Jesus, the promised Messiah, the King of Kings, the great Savior, the suffering servant, the ones that come to deliver his people, the true son of David, the one that even nature must submit to him. Crazy celebration. Everyone is having a blast. Everyone is having a great time. The text doesn't say what the disciples are doing, but I'm assuming, I'm just assuming, that maybe some of the disciples is like, yes, finally people get to see Jesus. And they're not so holy are saying, yes, I'm hanging around with this guy. We don't know. Everyone is happy. This is the ultimate church service with no mics. <laughs> Everyone is happy except one person. And you miss it if you only read the Gospel of Matthew. That's why you got to read the rest of the Gospels, because the Gospel of Luke does not stop where Matthew stops. The Gospel continues. And in Luke chapter 19, starting in verse 41, this is what happened. As Jesus approached Jerusalem, he saw the city, and he wept over it. And said, if you even if you even knew, had only known on this day what will bring you peace. And I'm like, what? What happened? If Jesus is orchestrating everything and he wants people to recognize who he is, why is he weeping? Why is he brokenhearted? What is it that he saw in the midst of this exuberant celebration? Why is it that he says that these people did not recognize the time of their visitation? Why is it that he says to this group of worshiping people that they don't understand what peace is? Listen up, church. Because Jesus could see that the same people that were worshiping then, a week later, will say, crucify him. Isn't that crazy? The same group of people that are recognizing that Jesus is the promised Messiah. Later on that week, will shout just as loud, crucify him. You know what Jesus is? That he came to his own and his own did not receive him. The question is this. How do these people got to that place? How is it that you got a group of people that are worshiping the Lord with everything here and later on they change their mind completely? Point number two. The cross response. See, this is what happens when you get excited for Jesus without really Knowing Jesus. And I'm going to give you three things. That you must embrace and understand here. Either so you don't become like those people. Or it keeps you from becoming those people. Or actually stop being those people. Let me start with verse 5. This is the prophecy. See your king to you. That's the first sentence. And people are looking at Jesus and they read the first sentence and they're like, yes! We got our king! Yeah, but you, you never stop reading. Because they were in love with the first sentence of the prophecy. But as you're going to see in a second, they deeply struggle with the second sentence. Gentle and writing and a donkey. With the first sentence, people are saying, finally, we got our king, and they got the branches, and boom, we submit to you. And they completely, completely, completely ignore the second part of the prophecy. That this king will be powerful, but at the same time will be gentle and humble, Riding and a baby donkey. <laughs> Listen, if I'm a king, I will never write that donkey if I want to make an impression. You know what I would write? A lion. <laughs> oh, oh. You know what I write? An elephant. Something that will make people say, Wow, that's a king. If he could master that beast, he could master anything. Not Jesus. And this is what Jesus weeps. They were worshiping the king they wanted, not the king they had. They were worshiping the Messiah they wanted, not the Messiah that was sent. This is later confirmed in verse 9 when people are shouting, Hosanna to the son of David, Hosanna in the highest. See, the word Hosanna, as I already mentioned, means to save. It's a cry of deliverance. The interesting thing, though, is that that, that sentence, that word, that, that expression can be used in two different ways. And I'm borrowing this from a scholar called Daniel Doriani. And he says that this, the way you, you cry out of Hosanna could be one of these two. One, as a prayer asking for help. Or two, which is the way these people are using it, as a nationalistic cry. It is possible to have one expression that is supposed to mean something here and give it a completely different meaning. You know what they were crying for? In their mind, this king will come and overpower the Roman Empire. In their mind, the king that they wanted, the Messiah they wanted, was someone that would come, uh, that by force will overpower all of their enemies. And instead of putting those guys in power, God's people will be in power. Notice that in their hearts, this is a power issue. It is not a deliverance issue. That's why the picture of a humble A savior, gentle savior, doesn't make any sense to them. So I want to give you three things that took them to that place. And I want you to do a self-assessment if that is a description of who you are. Because there is an evidence here, and how is it that people could worship Jesus on Sunday, and on Friday they say crucify him. Number one, the Jesus they were worshiping was the Jesus, the product of their own imagination. Not the Jesus they had. And we know because of the word Hosanna. This is a bunch of people coming to Jesus and saying, I love you, I love you, I worship you, Hosanna, Hosanna. But in their minds... The Jesus they're seeing is not the Jesus that was promised in the Old Testament. How is it that someone could read a prophecy and interpret it so wrong? How is it that you and I can actually worship God, thinking that we're worshiping the God of the Bible, and in reality we are worshiping the God of our own imagination? Worshiping God like if he has to be what we want him to be. Yes, this is the problem of modern Christianity. We, we like to have the Jesus we want. Not the Jesus that is there. This is why people would say phrases like, God would never do that. Yes, he would. God would never. God, God of the Bible is a God of love, but cannot be a God of wrath. Like if you can separate those two things. See, if you don't want to be the one that worships on Sunday and then crucifies on Friday, you have to start asking the question, is the Jesus I worship the Jesus of the Bible? Is not the Jesus I add to, and it's not the Jesus I subtract from. Is the, the Jesus I worship the Jesus of the Bible? Number two. How these people move from this to this is because some of them embrace a fragmented Jesus. That's how I'm going to frame it. You know what that means? That you take parts of Jesus you like and you let other parts out. These people were doing what Burger King does. They promise you a Jesus that is having your weight. See, you don't, you don't get to do that, church. Listen, you don't get to do that. I don't get to choose the part of Jesus that I want. Either Jesus is king or he's not king at all. Either Jesus rules over every sphere of my life or he's not king at all. He is king over my time. He is king over my finances. He is king over my lifestyle. He is king over my sexuality. He is king over my entertainment. He is king over my singleness. He is king over my work. He is king over my parenting. He is king over my friendship. Either he's king of everything or you don't get to have Jesus. This doesn't mean that you and I are not going to struggle. That doesn't mean that. Of course you're going to struggle. But what this says is that the attitude of the heart of the believer is always to want to submit everything to his kinship. See, that's the difference between religious Christianity and gospel Christianity. Religious Christianity comes to Jesus. It comes to God just to get something out of him. Not interested in submitting your life to him. Just get something out of him. Gospel Christianity recognizes that Jesus doesn't need our permission because he's king or not. Either you're willing to submit everything to him. Or you might not have a saving relationship with him. Listen, church, I I love you, man. And the worst thing that I could do for you is make you believe that you can have a saving relationship with Jesus when you have a fragmented view of Jesus. You don't get to do that. No healthy relationship. In no healthy relationship, you can be with someone and say, I'm not willing to be modified by you. No one can say that in any healthy relationship. No one can say to whoever you love and say, you know what, I, I love you, but I'm not going to change for you. You can't say that. Can you imagine if I, I said that to Heidi? Baby, I love you with all my heart. I'll die for you. But I'm not going to be modified by you. And then Heidi would say, well, be modified and get out of my house. <laughs> because there is no healthy relationship. How, if we can do that at a human level, what makes us think that we can do this with God? We don't get to worship a fragmented Jesus. It is possible to worship a Jesus that is the product of your own, own imagination. It is possible to worship a Jesus in which he is completely fragmented. And number three, it is possible to completely miss what your greatest enemy is. See, I talked about this last week, remember? See, these people are convinced that their greatest enemy is the Roman Empire. What they fail to see is that even if God were to deliver them from the tyranny of the Roman Empire... And they, he will put the Israelites in first place. What they failed to see is that the oppressed, without a transformed heart, becomes the oppressor. Did you know that that's the history of humanity? Every time you grab someone that was oppressed, without being completely transformed, put him in a position of power and ruins everybody else. This is what they, this group of people fell to see. It is possible to worship Jesus. That is the Jesus, the product of your imagination. It is possible to worship Jesus when you have a view of a fragmented Jesus. And it is possible to, for, for you to forget that your greatest enemy is never outside of you. is always the one inside of you. And when that's not there, the very people that worship Jesus on Sunday and Friday, they're saying, crucify him. That's scary, church. This is the reason why so many people have walked away from faith. The view of God, it was not the view of the God of the Bible. So the question is this. How do we change? Or even better, what is that Jesus needed to do in order to truly transform us so, so we don't become people like that? Because we have been people like that. Point number three, the beginning of something new. I'm going to ask you to remember three words. Gentle, humbleness, and the baby donkey. It is in those three words that you see that Jesus knew what he needed to do not only just to not just give us religion, but to transform our hearts. See, with the word gentle, If you remember, I told you that the word gentle comes from the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 53. In which it says that our king and savior will have to be and become a suffering savior. Amen? Not someone that will come to overpower this world by force. But it will be someone that will come into this world to overpower this world... By suffering love. Keep that in mind. Now, the word humble gives a description of what Jesus was willing to do in order to save us. If you remember, the Bible says that Jesus humbled himself. Meaning that the almighty, powerful, eternal, omniscient, omnipresent, almighty God becomes a tiny human being. To suffer. Keep that in mind. And then think of the baby donkey. See, everyone knew that if you wanted to win a war, you would never ride a donkey. That meant, that meant that Jesus not only had to die and was willing to die, but that he orchestrated even his death. He chose to die. Why would that be so significant? because that's how costly your rebellion was. And Sunday we worship and Friday he dies. So we don't die. So today our hearts can be transformed and we worship Jesus as our Lord and Savior, the suffering King. Church, no one has loved you like that. There is a difference between wanting to die and choosing to die. Jesus chose you before you chose him. Jesus chose you even as you were worshiping a God the product of your own imagination. Jesus chose you even though you had a fragmented relationship with him. Jesus Chose you even though your heart was deceitful. Jesus chose you even when you did not choose him. And that's what changes your heart. And that's what turns you into into a true worshiper of the God almighty, beautiful, perfect, full of grace, and full of mercy, God. Amen? Yeah, give him glory. Do you have that? May the Lord keep us from being Sunday people. May the Lord keep us from being people that really, really don't know how to worship. May the Lord transform our lives. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, how easy easy it is to get entangled in a relationship with you, Lord, that does not honor you and does not recognize that you are truly, truly, truly king. How easy it is for us to become people that create a God, the product of our own imagination? How easy it is for us to take the parts of you that we like and reject the other parts that we don't? How easy it is for us to not want to be modified by you instead of submitting to you? How easy it is for us to want you to fix the problems inside of us instead of dealing with the problems inside of us? Lord, and it is because you so loved us that even though you knew that we were doing that, you chose to die. You chose me before you chose yourself. You chose us. Lord, no one has loved us like that. And no one can love us like that. Lord, please take us to the cross and leave us there until we see how worthy you are, how perfect you are, How merciful you are. How patient you are. And how powerful you are. Allow us to see and taste that you are our king. And we pray for all of this in the name of Jesus and the church says,